Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is November 22nd, 2011. This is episode 790 of the Survival Podcast, and I'm happy and, and excited today because in just a moment, I'll be bringing one of my good friends on the air with me, Chef Keith Snow from Harvest Eating, and he's going to talk about surviving Thanksgiving. This is this is the light week this week. You had a great, we had a show yesterday. We just talked about all the stuff going on in my house. And then today we're going to talk about cooking Thanksgiving dinner, and we might get a little bit into the nutrition side of things at some point, but basically this is just how to have a great meal. And then tomorrow's show is going to be the annual special, Thanksgiving special, and then Jack is out through Monday of next week. And I hope that you guys do the same thing. I hope you take this time to be with your family, and this is why we take this week and we back off. We do it a little bit at Christmas, too. We back off some of the more serious stuff, and we just enjoy each other, and we spend time as a community, and hopefully that, as a, our, as a community as a whole, we have better times with our families because we're in a more relaxed state instead of all tense and worked up, right? So that's what this week's all about. All right, so before we get Chef Keith on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors of today's show. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. You guys know I love knife kits, right, because of the mammoth tusk thing I'm always blathering on about. Well, yesterday I put out a video showing off my new mammoth tusk knife that, uh, that Patrick Rohrman has finally finished up for me. And uh, the reason it took so long was my fault because I was in a hurry and I wanted to have it in my hot little hand before he was even done with it and he was going on the road. And Anyway, we got it all taken care of. And uh, it came out beautiful, and I put out a video on that. Well, without KnifeKits.com, man, I don't know where I would have come up with presentation-grade mammoth for my handle. So check out KnifeKits, whether it's something exotic like that, or you just want to basically start learning how to make knives. KnifeKits is a place to go. DVDs, books, all the raw materials from the from the most basic raw materials uh, to kits that are kind of like just kind of fit them together kits. Whatever you're looking for, you'll find it at KnifeKits.com. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth because they're up there in the Sawtooth Wilderness in Idaho. Veteran run, veteran operated, and you get the kind of service you would expect when you're dealing with a U.S. military veteran. That means spot-on strack service. No matter what happens, they're going to make sure that they take care of you, and that's why we love having them as a sponsor. Now, what are you going to get when you go to Sawtooth Tactical? You're going to get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle, from SOE tactical gear to Magpul magazines and everything else in between. Check out Sawtooth Tactical today. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I do have some new videos out. Like I mentioned, I have the Mammoth Tusk Knife video out. But I also have two more videos on Hugo Culture out for you, so check those out if you get a chance to today. And uh, if, you, if you feel like you're not getting a survival podcast during our downtime for the holiday, check out our YouTube channel, man. I don't put up a ton of videos. I'm putting up more. Got a guy working with me now helping me out with the editing and, and what have you. But um, there's a ton of video content there. I was just looking today and realized how many videos I really have uploaded there. So check out some of that while we're gone. Uh, also remember, you can now listen to the Survival Podcast on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network. 
work. That's at PrepperPodcast.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You know, it make a great Christmas gift for somebody. If you want to give the gift of Members Brigade, use the form, right, instead of trying to pay for it online because you don't want to set up automatic renewal for something like that. If you want to, you can do it. Um, but, you know, basically you're setting it up for yourself when you do it online. Use the form and, and pay by mail, check or money order or cash or silver. And just give us a note on the back saying that's a gift membership. Maybe write gift membership on the front. And let us know if you would like us to just send the login information to you or if we'd like, to, like us to send it to your, to your giftee. Uh, and let us know if you want a renewal reminder sent or not on that when it's a gift membership. And we'll be happy to do a gift membership. So with the Member Support Brigade, you get exclusive content. You get great discounts. You get over $200 worth of free ebooks. It's awesome. And if you are military law enforcement or Peace Corps active due to your prior service, remember we have a special discount program. Just email me before you join. I'll send you the discount code. Just tell me a little bit about your service so that I can uh, know what I'm thanking you for doing. And that way I know I'm dealing with somebody that actually served instead of somebody that just wants a discount because they want one. All right. Now, with that all wrapped up, I am uh, really excited to bring our guest on. Uh, and as I stated before, it's Chef Keith Snow from Harvest Eating. Chef Keith just rocks. He teaches us how to cook seasonally and locally. But today he's going to teach us how to do a great Thanksgiving meal so that we can all put ourselves into a turkey and carbohydrate coma and sit on the couch and watch football on Thanksgiving exactly the way that God intended for men to do on Thanksgiving. And with that, Keith, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Hey, um, so I, I guess Thanksgiving is a big time for, for a chef. I mean, it's probably like it is like your Super Bowl or whatever. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's it's um it's kind of the start to the well, it is the start to the to the real holiday meal season. And I would say that it's probably people do different things on on Christmas, but just about everybody does a turkey on Thanksgiving, and and I think it's one of the it's probably one of the most high pressure meals, and that's something that. You know, I'm always trying to help uh, women and men, too, out with because that meal, there's so much going on. There's so many different side dishes and turkey and gravy and dressing, all this stuff going on in one short day. And folks that, you know, don't do a lot of cooking during the year or they don't know how to cook for uh, a number of people because it's you can easily have there's going to be loads of Thanksgivings out there where there's 12 and 16 people, sometimes more. And all of a sudden you've got somebody. Uh, cooking for that many people, they're not really used to cooking large meals, and then the whole, you know, the, the mise en place, having everything in its place, and the planning and execution of when the dishes have to go in, making sure things are brought to the table well seasoned and and the right temperature and you know properly cooked, all these things become uh, really scary for people, and that's why you know from re literally today when we record this, it's Monday, right? Straight through Thanksgiving, I'm on, you know, like a doctor, I'm on call for my audience and certainly your, your audience too. Anybody can reach me, Keith at HarvestEating.com or anything that's posted on our Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash Harvest Eating. I will step in and help people because they get super nervous about doing these things. And, you know, that's why they've got the, the uh, Butterball Turkey Hotline because it can be, you know, it can be intimidating. And, and this is one of those meals and people can definitely get it where, You know, the mother-in-law is coming over. So you've got, in most cases, you've got women that are cooking the meal and their, you know, their mother-in-law is coming over and you, she doesn't want to hear that, oh, the turkey's dry or <laughs> things like that that really, you know, just make a bad situation worse. So, you know, it's, 
it's a big holiday and it pays to, to do a, a little bit of research. And, you know, nowadays with the, with podcasts and videos and the internet, somebody can spend, you know, an hour brushing up on their techniques, get some ideas, um, and really, you know, execute the meal well. Yeah. Um, I, I've always thought that like the, the big stressor though is the turkey. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that. And I'm sure you'll tell us how to make a great turkey, but here's kind of my assessment. Number one, uh, a lot of times people are cooking a turkey for a big get-together, 18, 20, 24 pounds. Most people do not cook a 24-pound anything any day other than maybe Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it's either a turkey or a ham. And let's face it, if you screw a ham up, you've done something really wrong. Most of the time, you can pretty much warm up a ham. Uh, but a turkey, we have to cook it. It's raw. So now I've got this 24-pound creature I'm shoving into my oven. And I am, if I'm like most Americans, I'm deathly afraid of undercooking, which usually results in overcooking. And then people are paranoid that the turkey's going to get cool and too cold before everybody shows up. And there's like late guest. So you keep the turkey in there on warm and all of this ends up with dry turkey. And then, yeah. like you said, the mother-in-law is like, huh, you know, or whatever, whoever's the judgmental one at the table that day that wanted to be the one to make the turkey is, you know, in that scenario. So how do we prevent that? Well, there's uh, there's definitely a couple of things that are critical with, um, you know, not screwing up this turkey. And, and number one, the first and foremost, is the turkey is a big creature. You know, you're usually talking most people aren't going to have anything less than 10 or 12 pound turkey. I was in the store today just looking at some of the weights and I didn't find anything under 12 pounds. And they were some of them went up into the 20s and these were fresh turkeys. But um, there's two types of turkeys. There's a fresh turkey. And there's a frozen turkey. And probably the majority, I would say at least 75, maybe even 80% of the people get a, a frozen turkey. Um, and what happens is they do not, again, they don't cook all year. And like you just pointed out, they're not used to cooking big things like that. They don't realize the amount of time it takes for that thing to de defrost. And God forbid they take it out Thursday morning from the freezer. But if you take it out, Monday afternoon from the freezer, you could have a problem. These turkeys can take a solid three days, sometimes even four days to thaw out. And that is just beyond a lot of people's comprehension. But when you get something that's, let's just say, 20 pounds and frozen rock solid, you know, that's below zero, bringing that thing up to um, refrigerator temperature, which is still about 37 to 40 degrees, it can take days upon days. And one of the most sort of cardinal sins is trying to cook a turkey that's not fully defrosted because this is going to guarantee failure. So one thing that we always advise, um, try to have that turkey in your refrigerator on Sunday, whether that's Sunday afternoon, get it into the refrigerator on Sunday and let the thawing process happen. And that's that's the number one. Would and most that, people be better off than just buying a fresh turkey instead of a frozen turkey? Yes. Yeah, fresh turkey is going to have a better consistency as well. When you freeze meat, um, it's not bad. I mean, I've had my, tons and tons of frozen turkeys. But when you freeze turkey or any type of meat, there's ice crystals that get inside there. When they freeze, they get a little jagged if you're looking at them under a microscope. And it tends to kind of uh, make the meat sort of rough. Whereas a fresh turkey doesn't have that. So if you could buy it fresh, you're just that much further ahead of the game. In most stores, they have some, they don't have as many. So that's, um, that's usually the challenge. People 
would get it. You know, they try to go there on Wednesday and get it. A lot of times they're going to be sold out. Um, do, you, do you think some people put off a fresh turkey till Wednesday because they're afraid that the damn thing is going to go bad in the refrigerator sitting yes. there for a week? And I, I don't think that there's any reason to worry about that. No, no. You you can easily pick it up on Monday uh, or Sunday, and it's going to be fine. Again, it's a big, heavy bird, and they're wrapped really well. And, you know, let's be honest, they're definitely uh, 90% of the birds are, are treated with um, they're injected with a solution that helps to keep them moist. It's, it's also somewhat of a preservative because it's got um, it's got salt in it or, or uh, sodium. So that's not really the big worry. Uh, a good thing to, to note also is if you go to go to th- go to the, the supermarket on Friday after Thanksgiving, you can pick up turkeys for nothing. And uh, it's great to roast up a turkey and slice it up for lunch and meat or, or whatever. That's just a little side issue. but Yeah, you know, last year, I think it was, we went to Tom Thumb the weekend after Thanksgiving, and they had smoked turkeys they didn't sell. And I think they were around an average of like 16 to 18 pounds, and I think they were $9. And they weren't even doing it by pound. It was any turkey for 9 bucks. And we, like, okay, we have a deep freezer, buddy, so let's go. And I think we, we grabbed like six of them. Yeah, it just makes sense. And, and you know, the, uh, the, the supermarket manager that runs out of turkeys on Wednesday, I mean, he's not going to have a job the next year. So they make sure that they order heavy because running out is not an option. If you, Where he, he's not going to get fired for having some on Friday. Right. Yeah, <laughs> he'll sell them and get, you know, get something for them. But yeah, you have to, you have to make sure those things are thawed. Take advantage of the sale. And by all means, if you can get a fresh one, that's even that much better. And a lot of people now are using, uh, you know, the harvest eating side of things, getting them from local farmers. And it's funny. I've got a farmer, um, a guy that's literally, he might be two miles as a crow flies and he raises, um, chickens, turkeys and ducks. Um, and I wanted to get one from him. And this summer, I kept saying, "Yeah, I'm going to get one of your turkeys. I'll call you." And he, you know, he reminded me they go quick. People reserve them. Give me a call. And sure enough, I tried to get one, and he was, uh, he was had a waiting list. So that wasn't going to happen this year. But that's a great option too, is getting, you know, a, a local turkey. But um, the, the second thing that's really critical with the turkeys, you know, is making sure it's defrosted. Or if you're using a fresh one, that's you don't have an issue there. But inside the turkeys are bags of goodies and you know in the in the culinary industry we call that stuff awful it's just sort of um any type of internal organ um you've got you know the the uh, giblets and livers and hearts all those goodies are stuffed into a little bag and nowadays a lot of people including myself are not recommending stuffing the turkey we'll talk about that in a minute with the stuffing if you're up north you're from pennsylvania i'm sure you called it stuffing now that you and i are both southerners they call it dressing down yeah maybe in texas too i'm not sure yeah but um that's dressing is generally cooked on the side so what happens is folks that are preparing to cook the the uh, dressing or stuffing on the side they never even look inside the turkey and sometimes you'll roast a turkey with a bag of those things in there that's definitely not a good thing to do so reach inside the bird before you cook it and take that bag out and what i like to say is if you're fresh tur- if you got a fresh turkey you're not worried about it being thawed if you've got um the frozen turkey, make sure it's in there on Sunday so it's thawed out, and then get up early on Thanksgiving morning, you know, 6 o'clock, 6.30, have a pot of coffee ready, 
and then immediately take that turkey out because you you do not even want to put it in the oven. You definitely don't want to put it in the oven at 37 degrees because you're going to have problems. It's going to cook on the outside and not be cooked through on the inside. And then if you're trying to, to compensate and wait for that ridiculous little thermometer to come up, the legs will be dry as can be. So give it time. It's not going to go bad if you take it out of the refrigerator on Thursday morning at 7 o'clock. Just let it come up to room temperature for a couple hours. Most people are going to tuck that bird in the oven. I'd say about between 10.30 to anywhere, maybe up till noon, a lot of people are, are just getting their turkeys in. So let it come as close to room temperature because cooking anything, and this is the same thing goes for a steak or meat, you want things to be as close to room temperature as possible without having to leave them out to spoil on the counter. You, you know, um, Keith, uh, when I, le- I learned that from you, letting meat come up to, to room temperature before you're cooking it. And not only does it make things taste better, but like outside of the turkey world, but when I make a burger on the grill or a steak on the grill, it doesn't stick. You know, when you throw it on there cold, it seems like you always end up with sticking problems. And if you let it warm up, you don't you don't get that problem. Yeah, that's exactly true. And then it also... It cooks it a little more evenly, and you know, a lot of times with a steak, if it's ice cold in the middle, it will be really, really bloody, and then kind of cook well on the outside. It's just not a good practice in the restaurant business. Um, we try to to avoid that. We we have things being held on the line, which is a little warmer for service than you know coming right out of the refrigerator. So if your if your turkey's been warmed up, you make sure you take the bag of goodies out. And then at that point, your your uh, two major problems are solved. You're not going to have a turkey that's too cold or, or, God forbid, frozen. And let me just say to those folks that, um, you know, let's just say you're listening to this podcast. Is this going to air today, Jack, or tomorrow? Or when are you going to publish it, this? It's going to air Tuesday. Okay, Tuesday. So let's say they listen to this and then, oh crap, they they uh, they wake up. Or they, Wednesday afternoon, did you take the turkey out, honey? No, I thought you were going to do it. Take that turkey out and immediately put it in the sink, um, put it inside of a giant pot, and you need to run cold water over it. That's the only safe way. You definitely don't want to put it in the microwave. The only safe way to defrost it is with running cold water. Um, do not try to use hot water. Do not try to let the thing uh, defrost by air, it, you know, just by sitting out. So if you do forget, get that thing running under cold water. And and uh, most sinks are, are all sinks are tipped a little bit, uh, tilted. That way the water runs down the drain. Take your pot, move it up one side, let the water run in on the high side. It's going to spill over on the low side. And that action of water running out, cold water running out, will thaw your turkey uh, much faster than sitting at room temperature or even with hot water. So that's that's if somebody for, forgets. But let's say we're, we're beyond this. We've got the turkey out. Now it's pretty simple. What you want to do with that turkey is you definitely want to put it in a preheated oven. Don't stuff it in an oven and then turn it on. 350 is generally the temperature. And I try not to have a bunch of things in the oven with the turkey because just – you know, scientifically, if you're heating something, you know, air is moving in there and you've got currents of air. If if the turkey is, you know, on the middle shelf and you've got things on the bottom shelf, it's blocking the airflow. You're not going to get it to cook as well as it won't brown as well as it would. So try to just have the turkey in there. And what I like to do is I take my roasting dish and now you're going to be thinking about gravy and you're thinking about browning. Take your aromatic vegetables. Usually that's that's the mirepoix, celery, carrot, and onion. And you want these, you don't want to take out your knife and, and dice these up finely. You want 
pretty much whole pieces or break them in half or into thirds at the very least. And I don't put any potatoes, just celery, carrot, and onion. And uh, you can put a bed of that in your roasting dish and sit your turkey on top of it. Some people use a rack, which is a great thing to do. Um, you can put your turkey in a V-rack and then put those vegetables under it. And what's going to happen is as the turkey starts to render, because the turkey is, you know, it's got skin on it, quite a bit of fat comes off that skin, the vegetables will kind of uh, get that fat on there and they'll start roasting and you're going to, you're creating really deep base flavors for that gravy that you do later on. So that's a real important thing is to make sure that you've got aromatics. And what I like to do is I'll put the turkey in with those vegetables underneath, maybe dress them with a little olive oil to help the process. And then after about 45 minutes, then I'll go back and I'll put water in the bottom. And you do not want the turkey, you've got to judge it because it's going to be dripping a lot of fat. You don't want that pan to go dry underneath because if it goes dry and starts to burn, you can really ruin the whole turkey because that burnt, you know, black bottom of the pan smell gets everywhere. So don't let that thing go dry. You want to add water. You, you could add white wine, but I think that's a little too frou-frou. Um, I wouldn't add chicken stock, just plain old cold water to that um, to the bottom of the pan, and, and again, that's going to help collect juices and help to extract flavor from. And the And that's vegetables. just like enough to get us to the point where that turkey's dumping out, you know, because once that turkey starts to really dump out some fat, it's it's, it's good to go at that point. Right, exactly. And the reason I don't put it, uh, I don't put that water in there in the beginning, is because you put that water in in a hot oven, it's going to start steaming, and and steam ah. sort of prevents browning. So I like to let it get a little head start and start to seal on the outside. 45 minutes an hour, then I put the water in. And now here's the next, in my opinion, really big faux pas. And this is one of those sort of uh, lightning rod topics. Now, you and I, before we started rec recording, we were talking about the best uh, deer calibers and cartridges. And uh, I didn't, uh, you know, being a real newbie with guns, and I'm sure your audience can appreciate this, I started, I did some shooting yesterday, and I was looking for low-recoil deer rounds, and I went on to some of the forums, and boy, you, you see people that are just super opinionated about that that topic, and, and uh, you know, some guys are saying 243 is great, and then you got the guy coming in there, what are you, crazy, you couldn't kill a rat with that, you need a 308, or, and they're just people fighting back and forth, so that's a very contentious topic, and it's the same thing as basting a turkey. Now, do you baste your bird? I do. Okay. I do. Well, well, hopefully you're not going to hang up on me. But Okay. <laughs> a lot of people do, and that's why every supermarket in the country has those basting. Um, you now, know, now I'll say I don't baste a lot. I'm, you know, like your 45-minute period when you open it up, if there's some stuff down in there. I'll, and I don't use one of those bowl basters. I just take a big old serving spoon, and I just drizzle some of the juice on it maybe two or three times during the, the roasting process. Yeah, it's funny because most people use those those uh, bulby uh, uh, um, basters, and those things are actually quite dangerous. When you get that, those juices super hot, and you you know you suck those up, and then you kind of lift the thing. A lot of times, those can I use the word explode. The hot water can, and and you can burn yourself. But in my opinion, and I've been cooking turkeys for 25 years. And I've even uh, worked in restaurants that we serve turkey every day. So we roasted 50 or 60 turkeys a day. Um, basting really does not do much to the turkey. Now, right away, some people, ah, this guy's crazy. But just think about it for a minute. If you take your hand, right, what is your hand covered with skin, right? Just like a turkey, completely covered with skin. Put your hand under the water. 
right? Even hot water. The water is hitting your skin. It's running right off. Uh, I'm sure on a very microscopic level, maybe some of it is getting into the pores of your skin. But in general, the majority of the liquid goes right off your hand. And and a turkey skin, being fat like that, um, when you put it in the oven, it starts to melt. It gets real greasy. Fat and water don't mix anyway. So when you put those drippings from the bottom over there, they just run right off. And the only thing that you're successfully doing is you are... Um, making your oven go from 350 to probably 225, and that can happen super fast. You open that up, that air whew, goes right out. Your preheating is gone. Now you're basically starting that process over, which can take in some ovens six to ten minutes for it to get back up to temperature. And you are not, and I have tested this, Jack. I have basted turkeys in a restaurant kitchen and then cooked them plain and basted them you know, every 30 minutes or without any basting. There is zero zilch, not a difference in the moisture of the bird. So if if it's me, there is no way that I am going to be basting a turkey. Now, a lot of people will baste it, but I think it's a complete waste of time and something uh, that is just not going to happen at the snow house, and I never uh, advise basting. So there's another there's okay. the, the controversial topic. For I, you. I believe you. I mean, you've been doing this for uh, most of your life. So if that's yep. what you say, then I, I take it your word. Yeah, and my mom, um, she wasn't a baster either, but a lot of people are, and, and that's why when I was in this uh, particular kitchen where we had where we did about sixty turkeys a day, I said, you know what? What about the basting? And I and I did. I basted turkeys, and then me and uh, one of the guys, you know, cut those open. And there was zero difference. You couldn't, you couldn't tell at all. So I wouldn't bother basting the turkey. So now, and you know what you say makes sense, Keith, because like if you want to know how to make a duck, go see a Chinaman, right? And they roast those ducks, and those ducks are so amazing. The skin's crisp. The inside is perfect. They don't baste anything. They throw it in a fire, and they wait till it's done, and they yank it out. Right. What's really the biggest um, contributor to to dryness or having a lot of moisture is strictly the internal temperature of the bird. And this is where I'll get to the, you know, the next sort of uh what do they call third rail of turkey cookery is that silly little pop up thermometer. Now, we we all know and your audience is going to understand this more than the general public, but the FDA, you know, on whole is, is a giant pack of clowns. I think you call them ass clowns, or that, that, that's your word. But I'll, uh, I'll say that they're a giant pack of ass clowns, and they are so worried about us getting sick, and we can't drink raw milk, and, you know, everything is just ridiculously irradiated meat. I mean, if you let these ass clowns get in charge of things, uh, you'll wind up, you know, having a pill for dinner. But they set those thermometers at like 185 degrees. And I can promise you out there, if you let that thing pop up, and this is what everybody does. They wait until that ridiculous thing pops up, and then the mother-in-law is, you know, under her breath, oh, the turkey's dry. You're not going to get a juicy, moist, delicious turkey if you wait for that thing to pop up. The other thing to consider is, again, we say on average most people are going to cook a 20-pound turkey. When you've got 20-pound heavy turkey and you take that thing out of the oven at 180 degrees, and it's usually covered up, it's going to still keep cooking because it takes a long time for that cooking process to stop. So if you take it out at 185 or whenever that thing pops up, it's going to be just desert dry uh, in, in 20 or 30 minutes. And that is like, 
that is one of the, the, the things, you know, the gravy has got to be perfect and the turkey's got to be moist. Those are super critical things. And if you botch that, you're just not going to like the results. So I don't. Yeah, I think attention. some people, I think some people believe that the gravy exists because turkey is dry, you know, and I, <laughs> it's not supposed to be that way. Yeah, that's, that's exactly true. I'll just cover it up with gravy. I'll never know. And that's not the truth because even if you put gravy on it, it still has that, that funny chewiness and uh, a, fro- a previously frozen turkey that's overcooked will be worse than a, a fresh turkey that's overcooked. Keep that in mind too. But you have to take a turkey out at 165 degrees. That is the safe temperature for eating poultry is 165. Now I'll take my turkey out at 160. And that's not because I like to play Russian roulette with salmonella, is that I know because of the carryover, it's still going to wind up 170, 175. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And how do you know? How do you know? First of all, uh, a lot of people have these, uh, you never see those great big turkey thermometers? Yep. Those uh, are okay. Um, but, I would prefer somebody, particularly those people that are serious about cooking, invest in a probe thermometer, which is a digital thing, or just a cheap stick thermometer. You can get a stick thermometer literally for under five bucks in a store, but people do not know that these things have to be calibrated. And when you have that thing sitting in your drawer all the time and people are putting silverware on knocking into it and all that, it can get off calibration very easy. I've, I've taken them, um, again, being in the restaurant business, one of the first things that we teach, you know, culinary students or whatever is how to calibrate their thermometer. And we've taken just hundreds of thermometers that come in from the restaurant supply, brand new, open them up and test them, and they're way off. So you have to learn how to calibrate a thermometer. And for those people that know where my YouTube page is, um, they can see a video that I did that explains it. But it's very simple. You want to calibrate that thermometer to 32 degrees. And on every stick thermometer, it's got a little plastic jacket that you slide it into. When you take it out of the jacket, it's got a little um, triangular thing on there. And some people think that's you know kind of a, a pen protector to, to stick the thing in your pocket. It's actually a wrench. And if you pull that all the way off as far as it can go, it's it's the shape of a nut. And underneath the thermometer is a nut. And when you put the wrench on the nut and hold tight, you can turn the thermometer and the uh the little le- the gauge in there will move. And now to calibrate the 32, you take a glass and you fill the glass entirely up with ice. If you've got crushed ice, even better, all the way up to the top with ice. And then you put in a little bit of water. Then you take your thermometer and put it down um, into that water and stir and stir really fast. Stir um, for a minute. And what that's going to do, it's going to make the water get to 32 degrees. Now, if you don't listen and you put in two ice cubes and a whole thing of water, you're never going to get to 32 degrees. It's got to be 99% ice, maybe two or three tablespoons of water maximum. This is in like an eight-ounce glass. So once you spin it a while and you know that it's at 32, put that wrench on there and then take the uh, the wrench and calibrate the thermometer right to 32 degrees. And those things are, you know, for older people like myself at 40, it's it's hard to read those little things because they're so small. If you have to use a magnifying glass, that's great. But put it on 32. Now you know that you're going to get an accurate reading. And then after, let's say, two and a half hours, you want to take your turkey's temperature. That's really the only suitable uh, thing that I say to open the oven door for while it's cooking. What, what, are, you, what are your thoughts on digital ones? Because last year you told me this, 
And I went out and I got one of these digital ones that you plug in and the wire goes through the door of the oven and it sits there and you can see the turkey's temperature without even opening it. Right. And I, I didn't see any way to calibrate this because, again, this is digital. And it got up to like 160 and I'm like, uh-uh. So I ended up throwing it away and doing it by time and, and, and came out with pretty good results. Because um, this thing said the turkey was up to 160 degrees and it had been in the oven for maybe an hour and 15 minutes. And this was like a, you know, a good 18, 20 pound bird. And, yeah, and I just knew that couldn't be right. So I ended up chip canning that thing. Yeah, so are digital's not a good idea then, or did I just get a bad one or? No, you got, you got a bad one. And that's an excellent point. And I was going to get to that is, uh, I would prefer you buy a $5 stick thermometer and do what I said with the ice water than a 19 or $20 digital because those are crap. Um, you need, if you're going to use one of those, it's got to be the kind of ultra professional model. That's, you know, anywhere from 60 to a hundred dollars because I've had the same exact thing. I've had two of the sort of priced ones that may be like 20 to $29. One I got as a gift from my in-laws. The other one I bought online and they did the same thing. And I just, I looked at these things and I did my fix of my stick thermometer that I know was calibrated right and put it in there. And I had completely different readings. And I would use those. Um, the reason I bought those was not so much for the Thanksgiving turkey was because I like to do slow uh, barbecue. So when I'm smoking a pork butt, it's nice to have, uh, not have to keep opening that thing up because when you're smoking at 200 degrees and you open the lid, you really drop the temperature. But that's a good point. Those things, the cheaper ones, are not reliable. And yeah, this was like is, $24 or something like that. And, yeah, and I just chalked it up as stupid tax and, and, and tossed it out, I think. Yeah, and, and I remember I even – we had one – I'm not going to mention the company. I don't want to badmouth them, but it's a pretty popular company. And we had a bad one, and uh, they were nice enough they took it back. And then when I got the new one, same thing. The thing I don't know if it just was poorly made in China or something, but my my advice would either be if you're really into cooking, get an expensive one. If not, there's no problem with the probe thermometers. And those big, giant meat thermometers, I don't think, and I could be wrong, I've never calibrated one of those great, big, giant ones. So I don't know if they can be calibrated. If they can, um, a, a small wrench adjustable wrench on the bottom and the 32 degree water method would work on that but that's going to be your safest bet so now we're we've kind of covered some of the the majority of the things that can go wrong with with cooking a turkey um, definitely let nothing wait for the thermometer to pop up and you've you've overcooked it putting it in uh, partially frozen it's going to be cooked on the outside and then when your mother-in-law slices into it and and those red juices come out, that's going to be a bad incident too. So once you get through those things, really the, the last thing that you're left with is um, is is doing your gravy. And before I, I get to that, what do you do, Jack? Do you carve your turkey at the table or do you carve it and then bring it to the table? I generally carve it and bring it to the table. I might reverse that this time because this year it's just me, my wife, and my son. Um, but when I am dealing with a, like a table full of relatives, um, to me, it's just everybody's waiting and, you, you know, what do you want? Do you want dry, you know, you want white or do you want dark? And to me, it's just easier. You carve it all up, you present it on a platter and you bring it in and set it down in front of people and they take what they want. That's how I do it too. I, I find it's the same thing that you've got somebody 
If you want to look at it, come in the kitchen before I cut it. You can look at it and go, oh, it's beautiful. And, and you know, I usually leave the drumsticks whole, and I kind of set those on on the, you know, to two sides. And I have, like, the, the dark meat to one side of the platter and white on the other. And Yeah, that's that's pretty much how I do it. Yeah, and it's, and, you know, on the on the TV commercials or whatever, the ads, you always see the turkey on the table. And it does look it does look really pretty like that. But I like to uh, to carve it, and I'll... And I do a good job where the, the skin is intact on the breast and they're sliced perfectly. And like you, I have the, the drumsticks kind of sticking out. And then I'll dress that plate up with oranges and rosemary and sage leaves, things like that. But, um, <clears throat> that's something because it is true when you're sitting there and you know, you're just, you've been waiting all day. You're starving because you haven't eaten any lunch. And then you've got to wait for like 10 people to, you know, get there. And you usually have somebody that doesn't know how to use a knife over there slicing. You're just like, uh, so I like to, to do it on the platter, but let's talk about the gravy because this is, um, this is critical too is, is, and the thing that people do wrong with gravy, uh, number one, they use those ridiculous gravy packets. And again, I don't mean to, um, to, to insult anybody because, you know, obviously there's tons of those in the store. So people are using them, but, you don't need to use those packets. And if you stay away from those, and remember, at Harvest Eating, we talk about making as much stuff from scratch as possible to eliminate all of the, you know, science that are, that are in there. And, you know, 20 years ago, those things were still around, but they weren't as bad as they are today. Nowadays, they've figured out a way to get as much dangerous preservatives and just toxic ingredients in those things as possible. So I would never advise people to use it. So if you're not using that and you're making a gravy, think people do two things wrong. They bring, um, they don't have any flavor built into the gravy. And a gravy is nothing more than a broth or a stock that's got aromatic flavors in it. It's got flavor of the poultry and then it's thickened up. That's really what it is in essence. And a lot of people We'll bring one to the table that's what I would call or what we would say in the restaurant industry is it's dead. It doesn't have any level of seasoning, doesn't have a turkey taste, and how they make up for it is they put a buttload of salt in there. And then you've got like a salty type of, you know, watered-down gravy. Yeah, it might be thick, but it's not gravy. You have to make gravy right. And it starts from the moment the turkey goes into the oven when I talked about the aromatic vegetables, having some liquid in there, the melted fat coming off the turkey, that's component one. The second thing is when you take that bag of goodies out of the turkey, you want to make a a broth or a stock. Use those those uh, giblets and all that stuff. Put it into a sauce pot. And again, add aromatic vegetables, the, the mirepoix, celery, carrot, and onion, couple bay leaves, if you've got some parsley stems or leek stems, you can throw those in there. If you want a couple peppercorns, more power to you. You don't necessarily need it, but don't put any salt in it. And then fill that up with water, maybe four or five cups of water, and put it on a very slow simmer. And it's important to start with cold water. You don't want to start with warm water or boiling water. So you start with cold water. Your turkey just went in the oven. Now you're working your gravy. You don't want to wait for that turkey to come out and then, oh, crap, i got to make the gravy and reach for those packets. So you've got your your giblets and stuff. They're in water. They've got aromatics. They're going to simmer <clears throat> excuse me, for a couple of hours. And then... Um, when the turkey comes out, if you've, you know, melted a lot of that fat off of there, and if you had some water in there, you're going to have quite a bit of, um, mashed up vegetables because those are going to cook down onions and, and, uh, the, you know, the celery and the carrots, plus a lot of juice. Now take your turkey 
out of the roasting dish and cover it up. I definitely, what I'll do is I want to let it rest a little bit. So I put it on my board. I cover it up really well with um, foil. And I don't use the small foil. I have the uh, professional really wide roll of heavy-duty foil. And if it takes two two big sheets, so be it. Cover it up with um, foil and then take a bunch of kitchen towels and lay those over it. And that's like a blanket for the turkey. So it's going to stay nice and hot in there. And remember, this is another reason you want to take it out at one 160, 165, because it's definitely going to carry over. But so now you take that roasting dish and you want to um, go over to the to the sink, put another clean stock pot in the sink and put a strainer in there. And you want to pour everything that was in that roasting dish through the strainer. If you've got to take a scraper or whatever to get it out, scrape it all out. Then you're going to take um, your pot of aromatics plus the giblets and pour that through the strainer. Take the back of a knife, or excuse me, the back of a spoon or a, even a potato masher and press down really hard to extract, particularly with the carrots and the onions, there's a lot of water in there and press that, that flavor through your, your strainer into the bottom. Then you can toss that stuff. If you've got some pigs, they love it. Most people don't. You can just toss it in the garbage or maybe uh, into the compost, but it has got a lot of fat on it, so that's probably not a good idea. So now you've got a pot of flavorful liquid. So you are, you know, most of the way on, you know, you're on your way to having a great gravy. But let me throw out this caveat. Some people that maybe had the heat up too high on the pot of giblets and water, maybe it reduced by 90% and there's only a cup of water in there. Maybe they didn't pay attention and keep any water under their turkey. Maybe the turkey they got was, you know, on a diet and didn't have a lot of fat. There could be a variety of reasons. You know, if they have an open roasting dish compared with a covered roasting dish, obviously more evaporation took place. If you get to a point when you strain all that stuff through and you look in your sauce pot and you've got three cups of gravy, you are in deep doo-doo because you've got 12 people waiting and that naggy mother-in-law wanting some good gravy and it's not going to feed anybody because once people cover up their turkey with gravy and their mashed potatoes, there's not going to be any turkey. And this is a major problem. Every year, millions of people go through this. They get to that point where, oh no, we don't have enough gravy. So either they have to reach for the packet or if they don't have any packets, what are they going to do? They're going to go right for water. And then when you add a bunch of water, you have to remember water is a one of the most important tools and ingredients in cooking, but it is totally neutral and has zero flavor. So when you put in, when you've got two cups of gravy because you weren't, um, you know, kind of paying attention and you need to have a quart of gravy, all of a sudden they're going to add water to it. And now you've diluted all that flavor you've worked hard to build. You've diluted it. And now that it's diluted, it's not going to have any level of seasoning. So you're going to wind up putting a bunch of salt in it to get it to taste like anything. And you are not going to have a good gravy. And that is, you know, that this is sad because people, they they get all their side dishes tasting good. They they were able to, to cook the turkey well, and then they botch up the gravy. And, and believe me, gravy is kind of, uh, it is the icing on the cake. It is super important to have good gravy. So... If you get to that point and you don't have uh, enough gravy, don't use water. By all means, go into your pantry. If you've got one of the 
the high-quality boxed chicken broths that are in the supermarkets all the time. Um, you can use that. And I would suggest that when you're shopping Monday or Tuesday for Thanksgiving, get a couple of those just in case because you want to be able to use chicken broth in that gravy. Or if they've got turkey broth, most of them don't, but sometimes I've seen it, buy that. But you definitely don't want to use water. So th- those are some critical things. Now, once... Let's just say that you've collected enough liquid and juices from um, the turkey and from your pot of giblets. If you're in good shape there, now you've got to make the decision on whether you need to do what the French call depouer, and that is to skim the fat. Do you remove the fat, Jack? <clears throat> uh, actually, I usually don't. Okay, you don't. I and don't. a lot of times I don't, but you, you know you've seen those sort of silly-looking uh, plastic measuring cup doodads and they've got the little funny neck on them and, and that's designed to uh to skim the fat you have to make a decision if it's really fatty if there's you know two inches of fat and a fat of course is going to separate so when you when you um look at it and there's a lot of fat on it you may want to skim some of that fat because there's two ways to thicken uh a, well there's more than two ways but two popular ways to thicken a gravy um, there's a, a technique that the French would call, or a substance the French would call, burmanier. Burmanier is simply burr is butter and flour. And it's a 50-50 mix of butter and flour. And it's just, you know, it's sort of like kneaded together into a, a, a stiff paste. Now, don't confuse this with roux. Roux is cooked fat and flour. Burmanier is not cooked. And it's excellent because when you cook flour, the longer you cook it, the less thickening power it has. So raw flour and butter has got a lot of thickening power. And you can use a Burmanier to thicken up your um, your poultry gravy. And it's delicious. And Just and I one rec- thing I have to say when you're talking about this butter stuff. People, butter is butter. Margarine, country crock, parquet, uh, crocker, whatever fancy name they come up for it is not butter do you concur Keith? <laughs> oh i totally concur I, and that's so funny i would have totally forgot about that but that you're i mean talk about the the, the being spot on that stuff is not butter and particularly the earth balance and i mean i go to people's refrigerator i see this stuff in there and and i just you know i've got to refrain from from saying, what on earth are you doing with that? I mean, again, and it's butter. one thing about eating it, but when you're trying to make like you know a, a butter flour mixture to thicken something, and you use margarine, if you melt margarine, you watch like half of it is like an oily water that separates out, so it's not going to work right either. No, it's, it's going to make a total and utter mockery. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that that stuff for that at all. And, I call it one of the sins against food to use margarine and call it butter. <laughs> I agree, man. I totally agree. I'm a big butter guy. We uh, we eat a lot of. Um, we even get raw grass-fed butter from from Jersey cows. So we're we're sort of butter snobs. And my wife grew up with a a family of Europeans, English and German, and they're they're pretty butter snobs too so you you won't find any of that spread in our house we do have we keep some cream cheese and when my jersey cows uh come into milk we're never going to be buying cream cheese either but back to the butter uh i do like the burmanier but i would suggest using unsalted butter that way you could control it but if you use the burmanier if you also have two inches of fat on top you're adding a bunch more fat you do not want to have this is probably the last thing is you don't want to have a greasy gravy and if you've got too much fat on there you can get a greasy gravy and what that does is it really affects mouthfeel because when people put that in the mouth 
it's got kind of a slimy uh, mouthfeel, and that is definitely what you like don't want. Like sticks to your lips, and yeah. yeah, it's just it's nasty, and it's and when you have that much fat, it's gonna. There's no way to really emulsify that, so you're gonna have clear fat, and then the 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 you know the liquid of the gravy, and it's it's just not gonna be be right. So if you're if you're gonna use a bourmanier, you have to make sure that you skim some of the fat off the gravy. You can do that if you have one of those ridiculous plastic things. You can use that. Or you just use a ladle and you take that ladle and, and you want to do this when it's not boiling away on the stove because the action of the water will mix the fat in. So let it just stand there and you want to skim it first. You just take that ladle and you just slightly submerge it and tip it and just move it around and you usually can collect a good cup and a half of pure fat off the top. So it's, it's a good thing to, if you've got a lot of it to remove it. Um, but you know, I'll, I'm the first one to tell you that that fat also has got a lot, fat holds a lot of flavor. So you don't want to take every last bit of it off. But now you're going to thicken up your, your gravy. You've already strained it. You've got a good mixture. Before you get to thickening it up, you have to do one more important thing. You've got to taste it. Take your spoon and taste it. Because if it doesn't taste good at this point, just by thickening up isn't going to help you. So you want to make sure that it's, and at this point it should have enough seasoning in there because you're going to salt your turkey a little bit and that salt is going to drip down in there. You should be okay, but if you need a little salt, this is the time to add a little salt and either white pepper or black pepper. You're not going to hurt my feelings if you use black pepper. Get that thing tasting good. And now this is where I like to give it a, a heavy dose of sage. Now sage, as you know, is the... Uh, most popular herbal flavor of Thanksgiving. Almost everything that you buy, those packets of gravy, those dehydrated bread for stuffing, all of it is laced with sage. And that's, that's just one-of-a-kind flavor that you have to have on Thanksgiving. Two ways to add it to your gravy. Getting a little bottle at the store of rubbed sage, and, uh, and look for it. It'll say rubbed sage, and that just means that it's it's in a powder. That works really well. If you don't want to use that, you can use fresh sage leaves. That's fine, too. Mince them up or use the, the powdered sage and put some in there. Stir it through and, again, taste it. You want to be able to taste a rich turkey gravy and then the final kind of around the sides of your mouth when you swallow should have a floral aroma of sage. If you've got that, you're good to go. And you definitely don't want to put any of that in, in the beginning because it will cook all the flavor out. So you're adding it right before you thicken it up. It's seasoned properly. You've got the sage in there. Now you thicken it up. And when you thicken things, it's got to be, you know, at the boil or slightly below. It's not going to thicken if it's at 180 degrees. So you want to make sure that you're at the right temperature and use a whisk. Uh, or you can use a ladle and really move the water around. You don't want to dump, um, you know, a bourmonier or a cornstarch slurry. That's the other way that you can do it. Cornstarch and water, 50% cold water, 50% cornstarch. Mix that up. That's that's a great thickening agent too. So use one of the two of them and make sure that you really thicken your gravy so it's got the right type of texture. And it can't be watery and it also can't be like glue. And now, once you have that, you can fill up your gravy boats, bring those to the table. But um, usually, 9 out of 10 times, the gravy is going to run out. And if you haven't thought about that ahead of time, you're going to have either cold gravy or if you left it cooking too hard, it would evaporate off and got too thick or, or God forbid, burned. What you want to do is take your stock pot 
and um, take it off a burner, put a cast iron, it could be anything, cast iron skillet or, you know, a little Dutch oven, anything, put that over a low burner and then put your pot on top of the piece of cast iron. That's called diffusion. And that's going to diffuse the flame and keep your pot really hot. The other thing that you could do is put it, um, put the pot inside of another um, cast or uh, Dutch oven and you could put boiling water around it. And that's what we do in the restaurant industry when we have what's called a make table. We have hotel pans and stuff. And underneath that is um, simmering water, like water and a lot of steam. And that will also keep it hot. So keep that in mind that you want to have some hot gravy. And then, you know, the other thing is the side dishes. And, you know, it, again, it really, I think it really depends on what part of the country you're in to uh, determine, you know, what sides you use. What's what's your uh, what's going to be on the Spearco table? Well, I, I you know what what I guarantee you will be there will be stuffing or ha- what do you want to call it stuffing or dressing, and I guarantee you there will be mashed potatoes. And this is from a guy who's living the low carb lifestyle. On th- and this is my other thing, folks. On Thanksgiving, you don't stick to your diet. You don't worry about how to stay thin during the holidays. You shut up and eat. And you eat the good food and you enjoy it and you revel in it because that's what it's all about. So I'm going to put myself into a carb-based coma uh, on, on Thanksgiving and watch football and, and potatoes and stuffing. And we usually do green beans. I usually do green, like fresh green beans and I'll fry up some bacon and I'll reserve the grease with it and I'll do bacon on the green beans and, and, and drizzle the bacon grease on that. And that's I mean, that, that's the whole recipe. There's no more to it than that. And those are like our staples. We usually do corn because my kid likes it, but that's just you heat up some corn. Um, and that's our mainstay, you know. And then I, I usually do some other things, but since it's just the three of us this year and we're going to be leaving Friday morning and going down to Texas, we probably won't do much more than that. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that sounds pretty darn good to me. But, yeah, the, the, uh, the sides are, you know, after you've mastered the turkey and the gravy, you know, people are, are interested in sides and we'll definitely have, um, we'll have mashed potatoes. And this comes, this brings me to another sort of classic error, um, is bringing cold mashed potatoes to the table. And this is done so many times. People will cook their mashed potatoes and then they pour milk and butter in it that come right out of the refrigerator. And all of a sudden it's cold and then, oh crap, the potatoes are cold. Then they put them on the stove and start stirring them and, you know, they burn on the bottom and they, it's like molten lava all over the stove. There's definitely the right way to do that and the wrong way. And I'm going to tell you the right way. And we use, um, 99% of the time we'll use Yukon gold potatoes. And sometimes they don't call them Yukon gold. We'll just call them gold. Um, but those are excellent, excellent potatoes for mashed potatoes. If you can't find those, you just use standard Idaho potatoes. What you want to do is peel them and cut them up into even pieces, like golf ball hey, size. Real pieces. quick, though, don't use redskins for mashed potatoes, folks. It, they don't come out right. It just, yeah, they, they tend to be a little kind of watery and uh, almost non- like glazed looking or something. It just it, We did that one year, and I don't think I was in charge. Yeah, no, those are, those are good for other applications. I don't think that they're great for mashed potatoes. But, um, what, what I like to do is steam the potatoes. And again, we talked about water being a neutral flavor. If you boil the potatoes, um, they're going to be waterlogged with water, obviously, and that doesn't have a lot of flavor. And, if, and on a molecular level, if the potatoes membranes are soaked with water, it's going to be hard to get flavorful liquid like butter and cream in there. So steam the potatoes, put them in a steaming basket, 
and steam them. Now, when your potatoes are done, and that means fork tender, you don't want them to fall apart to mush. Look for them, and you know if you can get a fork in and out or a knife, and they're and they're nice and tender. Turn off the heat, leave them covered. They're going to stay nice and warm with that um, you know steam and the boiled water underneath there. And now you want to make your what I would call infused cream mixture, and uh, try to make a little more of this than you think you're going to need. But let's say you're going to make I don't know five pounds of mashed potatoes. You're going to probably want to have at least a quart of liquid. And I would use uh, three ingredients, butter, and again, this would be uh, unsalted butter normally, a good quality butter, definitely don't put, you know, country crock. So good butter, um, this would be heavy cream, I like organic heavy cream when I can, and whole milk. Um, you can put one other thing in there, kind of as a, a little special thing, is a little bit of cream cheese, full fat cream cheese. People don't know that it's in there. But they, it just gives a really great ta- uh, taste and texture. So you can put a little cream cheese too. But make sure you take a separate stock pot, heat up your milk, cream, and butter. And then you want to um, – what I would do for Thanksgiving is I'd probably use chives. Take a bunch of chives, mince them up, and throw chives right in there. Um, and if you're if you're doing this and it's not Thanksgiving, a couple of garlic cloves is great as well. But I don't recommend the garlic flavor too much on Thanksgiving. But you want that mixture to come up to the scald. Don't boil it because it'll come right over the sides. It can catch fire. Just bring it to a scald. And what that's going to do is it's going to infuse it. And if you've got the chives in there, you're going to have a, a really uh, wonderful chivey milk and cream mixture. Now, what I like to do, you can do... Certainly a hand blender, you can do a stand mixer, or you can use grandma's potato masher. Whichever method you do, it is critical that you don't put potatoes into liquid. You have to do it the opposite way, because if you dump the potatoes into the liquid and you add too much liquid, then you're hooped, because now you've got a watery porridge and potato porridge instead of mashed potatoes. So what I like to do is I use my stand blender, take the potatoes out of the steamer, carefully shake them a few times, and then drop them down into the stand uh, mixer. I use the whisk attachment. I'll season them first with a little bit of salt and pepper, and then I'll start, I'll turn it on. Once they're broken down, I'll start to tip the uh, container of infused milk and cream in a little bit at a time and let it thoroughly incorporate. But you don't want to do it on high speed because you can get gummy potatoes. So you want to do it on, on a low speed, let it mix, and then try it for seasoning. Make sure it's got enough salt, enough pepper, should have a good chai flavor, and definitely don't put in too much liquid because you'll get soft potatoes. And you want a mashed potato, just so you know, a properly done mashed potato, you should be able to pick it up on a spoon and it should hold its shape pretty firm like, uh, you know, like stiff peaks with egg whites. It should stand up on the spoon. If you pick it up and it wants to run off the sides, you've kind of, you've messed it up. So don't put too much liquid in there. So you got to have mashed potatoes and gravy. That's wonderful. The other thing that um, is kind of overlooked, and again, a lot of people are using a stovetop stuffing, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing. There's nothing wrong with it per se. It's, you know, hey, it tastes good. But um, this year I've come up with uh, a new recipe for dressing, and it's a Brussels sprout and leek dressing. Call it stuffing if you want, whatever. But what I do for this is I'll take a couple of leeks, and as you know, leeks grow in sandy dirt. You know, most vegetables grow in dirt, and leeks have a 
a, a nasty habit of collecting a lot of dirt. And we talked about the, the mother-in-law quiping about the uh, turkey being overcooked. If she gets a bunch of grit in her teeth, you're going to hear it, and it's going to be a miserable experience. So definitely take some time. Make sure that those leeks are thoroughly, thoroughly washed. That means opening up, splitting them in half with a knife and opening up each leaf and rubbing it about three-quarters of the way up to make sure all that dirt is out of there. So I start with a couple of big leeks, and I'll cut off the majority of the green part, take off the uh, root end, cut them in half, and then um, you know slice them up pretty fine. And I'll start those in a saute pan with a little bit of um, butter, olive oil, salt, and pepper. Turned up pretty high. I'm trying to get some a little bit of saute on there. And then I use Brussels sprouts. You certainly could use fresh Brussels sprouts, but they're getting kind of expensive. And it's really hard to, to buy. I'm finding nowadays that they come to the store and they're all like dried out looking and they're just old. So yeah, the I, only time I've seen them in a store where they're not kind of nasty is the one store down in Texas we used to go to. I think it was a Tom Thumb. They would come on the on the on the on the stalk. Right. So you had the whole big stalk there with the sprouts on them. I'm not a big Brussels sprouts person, but I, yeah, my wife are... always talks about them. And I remember the first time we saw them, I'm like, you know what those are? She's like, I have no idea what that is. I'm like, those are Brussels sprouts. And I don't think she had ever seen them on a stalk like that. Yeah, they're pretty neat how they grow on the stalk. And it's definitely one of the love it or hate it vegetables. Uh, we happen to really enjoy it. It's got that nice tart flavor. But if you like cabbage and Brussels sprouts, you're going to like this stuffing. And what I use is just two pounds of frozen Brussels sprouts. And they taste fine, but because they're frozen, they're fairly waterlogged. So just take them out, slice them in half, put them in a separate skillet, a little olive oil, butter, salt, and pepper, and then cook the, those two ingredients. And you want to try and get a little saute marks on them. It's going to be hard on the Brussels sprouts because, like I said, they're, they were previously frozen. But you should be able to get some good you know, saute and a little brownness on the, on the leeks. Not burnt, but a little bit of brown. And then it's then the majority of the dish after that is just the breading. And what I will do is I'll go to the store and get a loaf of, you know, quote-unquote French bread. And that's that kind of you know, big, sort of doughy, um, soft piece of bread that you can get in any supermarket. They're cheap, probably under two bucks. Of course, the French would never eat any bread like that because it's really not French bread. But something like that, or even sometimes they call it Italian bread, take that, cut it in half, dice it up into cubes, small cubes. You've got your oven preheated, and this is something that can be done several days ahead of time. That's the other thing we'll talk about in a minute. But what you want to do is take the breadcrumbs, toss or the, not the breadcrumbs, the bread chunks, toss them in a bowl with melted butter, olive oil, and then some type of seasoning. Like you could use a bunch of fresh sage would be a good thing to use there, maybe just some rub sage. What I'll do is use our northern Italian seasoning, and uh, I'll toss that in there and try to get as much of the, uh, the the butter and olive oil kind of coated on there. I'll put the bread cubes on a sheet tray in the oven for about 15 minutes. Those are going to brown up pretty quick. Take those out and then you um, get a giant bowl, put the bread in there, the leeks, the Brussels sprouts, some salt, some pepper, some fresh sage, toss the whole thing together and then you want to add some broth to it. And this is where if you've got a lot of broth from your giblets and things like that, you can use some of that. Otherwise, just use a chicken broth. 
And definitely don't use water because, again, you'll have a bunch of moisture, but it's dead. It has no flavor. So use some chicken broth and make sure the bread, and you don't want the bread waterlogged and soaked, but you don't want it dry because it's going to be cooking in a casserole that's open. You're going to have evaporation as well. Make sure it's moist. Mix it all together in the oven for about 35 to 40 minutes. And you've got a killer dressing. I mean, we made it. Um, we'll be posting a video for our viewers and fans um, here today sometime. And that's a new one. And it, it was just awesome. We uh, at the Harvest Eating Studio Kitchen, we were gobbling that stuff up. And this is something that can be made ahead of time. Like I said, you can make this on Tuesday, even on Monday, cover it up, put it in the refrigerator. And then when it's time to cook it, you know, again, bring it out an hour or so before you're going to cook it. And then just cook it off at, at, um, you know, 350 or when the turkey comes out, whatever you can put it in there. Um, some people have two ovens. We're lucky, lucky enough to have two ovens. You can do it in that second oven, but that's a great uh, dish that'll be on our table. The other thing would be green beans and we do green beans with shallots and cream. That's dead simple. Again, that can be made ahead of time. Uh, most of it anyway. And that's just uh, a little bit of butter and shallots. Um, saute just for a little bit to get just a touch of color, a little bit of heavy cream, the green beans that have been slightly steamed for about 10 minutes, throw those in there, toss them around, a little salt and pepper. What happens is the cream will start to reduce, and as it reduces, it'll get sticky and thick. Toss it all with that shallot cream. Wonderful. There's a video and a recipe for that on Harvest Eating. The other- and, and, and that's good for the beans, and then like my bacon and beans are good. I, I, I just want to tell people, please stop making the stuff with the mushroom soup and the, the onion crunchy thing. <laughs> Franken food, whatever the hell they are, you throw on top of them. Thank Please you. stop doing that. Those things are just not good. They really no, they're, are. They're not good. And those, <laughs> and those, those soups, man. The, the, and again, years ago when your mom used to make it, it wasn't as bad. But these food scientists nowadays, I mean, those things are just absolutely cram-packed with salt, and they've got a lot of preservatives in there. So, yeah, I don't – That's not. I mean, I know I've just slaughtered somebody's sacred cow, and that's your thing or whatever. But learn to cook stuff like Keith's telling you with – be creative, and a fresh, bright green bean is much better than a dull, pale. Because what happens is they use the canned green bean, and then it, it, they cook it for an hour in that soup mixture, in the and it's just there's nothing left of it. Um, fresh, bright green beans, and uh, like what Keith's telling you, or with the bacon, or even just steamed and some salt and pepper is better than that stuff. I. That's my public service announcement. In addition to the butter thing, <laughs> no, I, to- I totally agree. That, that's uh, the, and it's so funny how things like that can become such long-standing traditions. You'll see that you know this week you'll see the ads for the French's fried onions because you can't you can't have Thanksgiving without that casserole. But no, we don't. We won't have that on our table this year though. Uh, I just did a video on on a dish that we've been having. Uh, my wife's been having it her whole life, but since I met her about 15 years ago, I, I uh, learned of this one. This comes from her mother-in-law, Omi, who's a German grandmother now, and she's got this dish called lard-roasted potatoes. And this is just, man, you talk about a great, you know, mashed potatoes are awesome for gravy. you got these lard-roasted potatoes. They are super for, for gravy, and it's simple. And again, these can be done slightly ahead of time. And what you need to do is take, again, russet potatoes, peel them, and a russet potato is kind of long. Cut it, cut it in half lengthwise. That way you've got two sort of half moon football shapes. 
Now those need to go into, once they're all peeled and cut in half, they need to be dropped into boiling water for two minutes and two minutes only. You can do that part, rinse them off in cold water and put them in the refrigerator. You can do that a couple of days ahead of time or if you, you know, happen to be doing it the day of, uh, once you take them out of that water after only two minutes, what you're going to do is put them inside of a, uh, uh, roasting dish and you want to don't be a wimp. You want to put, you know, a good half a cup or more of lard and you put that lard in there. And what, what you're going to do is not once you arrange the potatoes in there, you are not going to touch them. You're not going to flip them. You're not going to toss them because then you're just going to break them. Put them in there with the lard, put it into ovens at 350. And then after about 10 minutes, go in there with a hot pad. Tilt the pan up. The lard's going to run into the corner. Take a spoon and drizzle lard on top of each potato. And uh, also the other thing, before you put them in, season them liberally with kosher salt or sea salt, something like that. Try to avoid table salt. Um, but season them liberally, just salt, no pepper. And then um, baste them with the lard and then start cooking those things. At about 30 minutes, baste them one more time. And that's it. At about an hour. They, they, it takes a while, but at about an hour, Jack, they get an unbelievable caramelization on there, slight crispness. They brown up because of the lard. The house. That's killing me, man. I gotta oh, eat those now. Dude, it, it's crazy <laughs> good. I mean, those things are, we literally fight over them. And I don't know why, but maybe it's just because Europeans are frugal or something. But every time my mother-in-law makes them, I'm like, what are you doing? You, there's not enough. I mean, we're going to be like sticking forks in each other trying to, trying to fight over these things. She makes like eight potatoes and then there's just, there's never enough. I mean, you want to make quite a few of those things because trust me, when you get those and they're great with a standing rib roast too for Christmas dinner. Yeah. But yeah. you get those things and they get that nice crispy texture and then you cut them in half and they're kind of, they're really hot. You got to watch it so you don't burn yourself. You're making up. me think of like one of my favorite things with potatoes and it's, this is hard to talk about because I just don't eat many potatoes anymore. Uh, but you get the little fingerling potatoes, especially the ones that are like different colors. Mm-hmm. And then you take them, you wash them and you drizzle them with olive oil and you just roast them with rosemary. Yeah. And, and sea salt. And that is just, they're like little pieces of candy. You know, and that's, yeah. that's why I backed off of the potatoes. Cause really, literally it's pure sugar, but it's Thanksgiving folks go nuts. You know, I'm going to. Yeah. Incidentally, we've got a recipe for that, uh, on our, on our website for the, the fingerling potatoes and rosemary and even thyme is great, but. Hey, these lard roasted potatoes, man. They that are, sounds awesome. I might have oh, to do that. I'm just do you have my to potatoes do for the month, and maybe I have to do both, uh, the, uh, the lard potatoes and the mashed potatoes. And remember, folks, Paul Wheaton was just on and told us that or- organic lard is probably a super health food. I know you oh, don't yeah. believe it, but I believe it. <laughs> no, I totally believe it. And lard is one of the most stable fats there is. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be posting a video on how to render your own lard, but lard is awesome for you. It's really, it's actually a tremendously good fat and it's super stable, lasts for months and months. So- and, and then back to another public service announcement. Crisco is not, is not, is not lard. Paul, Paul Wheaton also told us about that. He was telling us that Crisco was originally invented to be a lubricant for something. I don't remember what, but whatever it was basically went away. Like it was, it was like Crisco came out and then this thing that it was supposed to lubricate. And I just can't remember. It's one of those, you know, tired brain cells or something. And like, so then the Crisco people are like, okay, what do we do with it? Oh, let's tell people they can eat it. So it was never even originally invented as a food. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's again, it's a horrible thing. And, you know, if you're going to make biscuits or pie dough, pie crust, I mean, lard is so much better than Crisco anyway. I'll tell you the only place, and, and I really need to try lard, but the only place I've ever used Crisco is when I season a cast iron pan, I use vegetable shortening. And I haven't tried it with lard. I'm actually going to do that to try it. But um, that stuff is, man, you talk about a stabilized, hydrogenated, that stuff is bad for you. And that's why a lot of Southerners down here that, that are, you know, cramming the biscuits and gravy in their face with all that shortening, that, that stuff will definitely give you heart disease. Lard, on the other hand, I, I'll submit that I think it, it will not. I think it's one of the most healthy. You talk about an energy source. Lard is tremendous. It's a, just, just like coconut oil. It's a fabulous, fabulous energy source. But those, um, those are great. And then cranberry. Uh, I mean, honestly, I grew up with the, the canned cranberry sauce. Yeah, I don't like that stuff. And it looks like a can. No, that stuff's terrible nowadays. And, and again, all these videos and recipes are up on Harvest Eating. Uh, we do, we do fresh cranberry and you can do this on the weekend before Thanksgiving. It'll, it's easily will last that long. And, uh, it's a, it's two bags of real cranberries, whole cranberries, and then, uh, some water, sugar, a little bit of, uh, orange rind and some nutmeg. You let that cook for 30 minutes or so, the, the uh, cranberries will explode. And when they do, they release a magical substance called, Jack? Cranberry juice. Well, yeah. <laughs> i got to give you a ding, ding, ding. You are correct. But the other one is pectin. Okay. Yeah, and those uh, cranberries and things like that are loaded with pectin. Yeah. And that's what makes that jelly, uh, cranberry jelly in the can get you know, gelatinous is pectin. So once you cook them long enough for them to explode, the juice comes out and the pectin. And then when you cool it off, that's what makes it thicken up. But I made that, uh, my wife is a physical therapist and she used to work at this hospital for a while and, and they always have like a staff Thanksgiving and, uh, she had to bring a dish. This was, I don't know, 10 years ago. And I, I made up that cranberry sauce and she yeah. brought it down there. And I got to tell you, I still, People will email me or call my wife getting that recipe you 10 know, years I, later. I don't get it. I've been doing that for years, making cranberry sauce that way. And like this year, I'll probably make like a, a handful of it because I'm the only one that will eat it. Nobody in my family will eat it. And I, I just don't I don't know, man. They've got some pretty bland taste or something. To me, you get a little bit of that mixed in with your stuffing and a piece of turkey. Magic. That is like, oh, man, you know. Yeah, I agree that that's uh, that's critical for that, you know, that Thanksgiving turkey sandwich later on, too. And, oh and I think God. the reason it works so well is those things are tart yep. and they're a little bit sour. And, uh, you know, you, you've got the turkey, turkey salt, skin. You got, and, yeah, it's salty. And then, you know, a lot of buttered gravy, which is, you know, let's be honest, it's got a lot of fat in it. Those yeah. are real heavy flavors on the tongue. And that's why something tart like that. And acidic, really, too, probably. Yeah, acidic, it breaks the... Right, it kind of cuts the fat. It makes Just it like a good red wine, it cuts through the fat on the palate, lets the rest of the flavor come through. Totally, totally, totally. And, and oh, I, you know, we've go been going a while. What about that? What about some recommendations for some wine for the table? Oh boy, yeah, and that's a, you know, that's controversial too because people will, um, you know, they wonder, can I, can I drink red wine with turkey, or is it got to be white wine? Um, we love. Uh, at a turkey, when we're eating turkey, I love Beaujolais, and that's you know that's the classic sort of Thanksgiving red wine. Is people bring Beaujolais out, which is one of the few red wines you you would chill at least somewhat. Yeah, you don't want that uh, super warm. But that is a really terrific. And the thing is, is you got to try to buy one that's about 
10 bucks a bottle or over. If you buy one that's under 10, you're really rolling the dice. But a Beaujolais is nice. And then a crisp Chablis um, is really nice. And again, because you've got uh, so much heavy, fatty flavors, a dry white wine is going to be much better than a sweet wine. So I, I would uh, always have like a, uh, a dry, a dry wine. Another one that that can work is like a Gewürztraminer, which is a, a German wine. And again, you'd want to serve that one cold. That's a little a little sweet. But that also works okay with turkey. But definitely Beaujolais. Beaujolais is classic. Um, and again, it's one of those sort of traditional things that I can go with. I can agree with it. Just get yourself a half decent Beaujolais and you'll be in good shape. On cake. that, there's actually a really great affordable one. Um, uh, and I'll probably say the name wrong, but it's uh, Louis Jadot, uh, Beaujolais Villages. And yeah, it's Louis, usually like Louis bucks. Louis Jadot. There you go. That is a good one, and that one, it should be in the store. It's got a a very uh, distinct-looking kind of brown paper label. But, yeah, they make a very good one. That's a good point. And, uh, yeah, those are nice wines. And if you can't find a Beaujolais, a very light uh, Oregon Pinot Noir would uh, would go well. Um, But you don't want something heavy. You don't want Merlot or Malbec or even Cab Sav. Those are just too heavy. On a uh, on the uh, the Riesling, there is a brand, and it's inexpensive too, called Relax. It comes in a blue bottle, and that is that is a great wine with things like turkey and chicken, and it's really a great wine like after the meal because it's a little bit. It's like an off. It's like an off dry, so it tastes sweet, but it's not. And it's a great dessert wine, and it's it's you know ten bucks a bottle or less. Yeah, I know the one you're talking about. And, and, uh, thinking back, we usually, in the last 10 years, we've probably seven of those years, we've had Thanksgiving with our, our neighbor. And, um, she's a big fan of the, uh, of the, the Riesling or the Gewurztraminer. Uh, and, uh, that is a good wine with turkey. But Jack, I'm going to give you, um, uh, one last question here. And I, and I bet, I bet a lot of our southern listeners are going to do slow cooked collard greens. Do you, do you do that? I don't. Uh, usually I do kale. If I'm going to do anything like that, but I'm probably yeah. again this year it's kind of at a, a smaller meal, so I probably won't. Yeah, I like um, and again for their for their ability to cut through the acid, I like slow cooked collards, and you know usually I try to um, plant in the garden specifically for my Thanksgiving table. I like to plant in September um, my my winter greens that way they're ready and I can cut them for Thanksgiving. I was able to do that. Boy, the last handful of years, but I don't know. This year, I got a little bit of a late start getting the garden, the fall garden planted, and then I'm not sure. I mean, my greens are up, but they're like a little. You know, it's it's small. Been warm. They're yeah. small. Yeah, it's it's too warm. It's it uh, even like my. It's been a bit warm even for like the Swiss chard we planted later in the year. I've got one or two that did really well, and for some reason, stuff with the golden ribs did better than the the, the green or the red. Um, but it's just been hot and humid, and it's not. Maybe that's it. I was thinking of taking my soil into the extension office to have it tested. I probably will anyway, but that's probably what it's been. I mean, it's it's been kind of super mild, and that stuff it likes a good, you know, likes those cold nights. It likes warm days, but it likes cold nights. When you get to where you're you're dipping right at the edge of a frost every night, and then your your days are in the fifties. That's like green growing nirvana for collards and kale and all that stuff. And when you're getting days in the 70s and you're getting overnight lows in the high 50s, low 50s, it just isn't happy. 
Yeah, that's that's probably what's going on. But it's funny. Uh, and then the photo period is the right photo period. So then it's like oh, it's confused. It doesn't know what to do, and it just sits there. Yeah, that's probably what's going on with mine because it's not even six inches tall. And it's been in there probably. I've got lettuce doing that too right now. Like it should be booming, and it's just languishing. So on on the on the meal though, like uh, maybe we could finish up with some dessert ideas. Sure. Um, classic for us is going to be um, my mother always, always, always made a, a thing called a chocolate roll, and uh, that is a. Uh, it's somewhat. I say it's complicated. It's a. It, you have to do it right, but that's just tremendous. And the reason it's such a great after holiday meal dessert is it's flourless, so it's super light, and it's just a combination of cream eggs and chocolate. It's not a mousse. It's a. It's a chocolate flourless chocolate cake and it's got what you would call chantilly cream in between it and then powdered sugar on top and this stuff is uh, of all the the recipes in the world this is one of my literally my all-time favorites and uh it's on the harvesting website i know a lot of your viewers and stuff are fans of mine and and supporters and subscribers but uh, if, if there's somebody out there that isn't a subscriber that really wants that Recipe. We usually kind of lock them up behind the members' wall, trying to make a living here. But uh, I will be happy to email email that to anybody because that Jack, particularly um, after the meal, you know, you want to have dessert, but boy, like you're like, oh, you're on the couch waiting. That is such a light dessert, and you want to talk about a hit. I mean, people freak out when they try that. That and sounds that, awesome. It is so good, and I'll, that sounds I'll, awesome. You've got a membership to the site. You look for that um, that cake in the okay. dessert section. That is really, really good. You know what you just made me think of, and I haven't thought about this in years, and it's really not related, but you use the term roll, and it made me think. My grandmother on my father's side used to make poppy seed roll and nut roll. And I don't even have it. I think the recipes died with her, unfortunately. I don't think she was never the kind of person that had stuff written down. She just knew how to do all this stuff. But it's like this long roll, and it's like a bread cakeish thing with the poppy seed or the nut mixture in it. She'd do both. And it's done with like an egg wash, so it has like a, a, a shine to the top of it. That right, stuff right. was amazing. I'm going to have to do some research and find some old Ukrainian websites or something with some traditional. Ooh. Because yeah. that was that would be awesome. I just don't know how to make it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really good. And you reminded me one of one of the things my mom always made is she always had these dinner rolls um, at all the holidays, and it was it was a sweet dough, and then she uh, you know cut them into triangles and rolled them up so they'd kind of be like a crescent roll, and then she would paint them with egg wash and bake them. Those are those are pretty awesome. But in addition to the uh, to that chocolate roll, the other thing I love love to do is pumpkin cheesecake, and that's. Oh, yeah. uh, that's simple. I've got a recipe for that on the website. And when you do cheesecake, you know, this goes back to your thing about butter being butter. People nowadays are buying these low-fat and even fat-free cream cheese. And let me tell you folks out there, when when they remove fat, in order for that thing to keep its its shape and to have any type of mouthfeel, because fat is just luxurious mouthfeel, they are loading these things up with thickening agents, um, things that make it thick to replace the fat and those things have a super gummy texture and I, and I remember uh, a couple of years ago we we were ready to make something with cream cheese and uh it was the public store brand if, if I can hammer them a little bit and uh, all of a sudden we were making I'm like oh man who bought this this uh fat free or low fat my wife had done it she's like oh I didn't I didn't even see it so I'm like okay and I opened this stuff out of the package and I am not kidding you this stuff was 
pretty darn close to silly putty. That's what the texture was. It was like you could break it off in your hand and roll it into a ball. It was like rubbery, silly putty that that was white. So if you're making a cheesecake, by all means, buy the best cheese, uh, cream cheese you can. And one that's really good is Organic Valley. It's it's organic. Uh, that that's ne- not necessarily the, the reason I like it. It's just cultured cream cheese. So you, if you can find one that says cultured cream cheese, use that. If not, make sure you're using full fat by all means. Yeah, and again, um, I just I, it drives me crazy because right now all week we're gonna see it. Ten ways to keep thin during the holidays and all this other crap. It's one day a year. It's not going to alter your life. Eat the best stuff. That's what a feast and a celebration are all about when it comes to the food. The very best. Yeah, that, that's for sure. And you know what? I mean, you know, Jack, I've been listening to you, and and uh, I've seen how much weight you've lost. And you know how you've lost the weight. And it wasn't by eating fat-free and low-fat. No, it wasn't. It was by eating bacon and ham and turkey and all the stuff. And the ribeye steaks are like my favorite thing. And it's all the stuff that the government says will make you fat. I don't want to get up on a, a preacher pulpit here or anything, but all I know is they said this stuff is the stuff to avoid. I ate almost 100% exclusively that stuff, and I've dropped over 75 pounds. Yeah, so, I mean, that's... That, that's why we call them ass clowns, Jack, because they... they uh, <laughs> and, and people are totally duped. I mean, I'm always in the supermarket, yeah. and I look at these people's shopping cart, and, you know, folks come in, and they're... You've got women that could that could be, you know, playing linebacker, and uh, you look in their cart, and I look. I mean, I'm being a food guy. I'm totally interested. Everything in the cart is fat-free, low-fat. Low-fat is, yeah. And, and yeah, or they go to sweeteners, thing. too. They, Dr. Oz did a thing where they had the audience come in, and they just put out a buffet spread and just said, take whatever you want. And then they, they watched what people ate, and then they asked people afterward who uses artificial sweeteners and who doesn't. And the people that use the artificial sweeteners ate almost twice as many calories as the people who, who use sugar. Yeah, and they're probably the overweight ones. Sure, and it's like, the, I don't know if it's a combination of, well, since I use artificial sweetener, I can have more, or I actually think that artificial sweeteners are dangerous, and not just for the you know the chemical, chemistry reasons given, but I believe that they trick the brain into believing that you're eating sugar when you're not. So now my brain is looking for the sugar, and my body is going, I don't have any sugar for you. So it throws everything out of whack. So it causes you to eat more because you're compensating for something that you believe is supposed to be there and isn't. And yeah, I, it, that's that's from Rob Wolf's book. And I might have exact, you know, taken it a little further than he does, but that's basically what I got out of it. And it makes perfect sense to me because your your body's going, okay, where's the glucose, dude? You know, where's it at? And it, it's not in the Diet Coke Zero or whatever. No, I, I completely concur. Um, all those, I stay away from that stuff like the plague. I know my neighbor recently, my kids go over there and she'll watch them on occasion. She was actually supposed to watch my son um, today. That way I could uh, do this interview because my wife worked this afternoon, but she had a doctor appointment. Anyway, she, uh, you know, she likes to give them popsicles you know as a snack which i don't really i don't really i don't want to say i don't approve of but all the time is not great once in a while and of course her inclination was to get the ones that didn't have sugar and and uh so my son had one this past summer i took a bite of it i'm like oh and i spit that garbage out i look right on it it's like i don't know nutrisweet one of those phony things that stuff is going to kill you And, and you know when i'm at starbucks which i am at Quite, quite a bit. I've got a pretty good habit there. I look and all the people that order skinny, fat-free, you know. They're all fat. They're all fat. 
they're all fat. I mean, it's like people wake up. If you eat all of this lifeless garbage, you're, you're going to be fat. You just need to, you know, don't eat potatoes every single day. Don't eat store-bought garbage French bread. Stay away from the doughy cookies. Eat real butter, real lard, plenty of protein, a lot of vegetables. Drink fresh water and get off your butt. Walk a little bit and you're going to be fine. I mean, it's just, absolutely. It's amazing to me. And, and Jack, I am, um, I, let me see here. I think I've covered all I want to cover. I, I wanted to let your audience know. Can I, can I plug something? Absolutely. Go ahead. Well, definitely, if you guys are interested in, in a subscription to my site, I would love to, uh, to have you guys. Uh, your audience has been just, uh, I tell you, I've been in business doing this, Jack, for, I don't know, six years now. The survival podcast people have been some of the most supportive. I mean, like really genuine, caring people that, that uh, I've met, and they've—I mean—they've kind of taken me under their wing, and they oh, support the because survivalists are all paranoid freaks, right? And oh yeah, the you know, I mean, hat people. Yeah. <laughs> but see, the reality is, as soon as people start looking after themselves, and I just had an interview with somebody uh, who said, "Well, isn't it counterintuitive?" Or you know, con- I don't remember what the word was, but basically, it's BS that if you really care about your community, you start by taking care of yourself. But the reality is, until you can take care of yourself, you can't take care of anybody else. So if you want a community of people to support each other, then people that have individual responsibility are going to give you that. Anyway, I'm sorry you were you were mentioning your offer for the your yeah. Mem- no, you're you're exactly right. And just uh, you know, thank you so much for all your audience members out there. But yeah, subscription to the website is something that would be a really great gift for Christmas. But also, we've been toying around with um, some survival food because, like your audience knows and you and I know, um, we're storing some food. And, and one of the things that kind of bugged me is every time I buy 50 pounds of grains or things like that is you really underestimate the amount of work that goes into once you get it, particularly if you buy it in a 50-pound bag, the amount of work and extra stuff you need to get that to a pantry-safe Point, you know, oxygen absorbers, buckets, mylar foil, all that stuff. I mean, it can take hours and hours to, to process that stuff. And, and I've been thinking about ways to help people with that. And, and also, you know, for women, lifting a 50 pound bag, I mean, unless you're a pretty strong woman, that's almost, it's impossible for a lot of women. Ooh, there goes some, some, uh, thunder, Jack. Um, but what we're doing is we're coming out with a line of survival foods that are, um, vacuum packed. So as soon as they come out of the box, they're ready to be put on the shelf and they're going to be in smaller quantities. So like five, 10, and I think 15 or maybe even 20 pounds is the max. And so these are, you know, again, if you're, if we ever get to a survival situation, when you open up a 50 pound bag of wheat, I mean, you're not going to use 50 pounds, even if you're Absolutely eating it a lot. It's going to take a while. So what we're doing is we're going to be offering um, smaller amounts, so they'll be they'll be reasonably priced. We're going to have whole oats, a couple different wheat berries, um, a bunch of beans, and then uh, also uh, my spices that are you you like the spices. Those oh, are dude, be- I'm telling you, northern Italian, bang on, and then the steak seasoning. The steak yeah, seasoning is the best thing I've ever put on a steak. Yeah, about every six weeks I see an order for Jack come in, but we're, we're going to be, uh, we, we already are vacuum packing those. So we actually make it a little bigger amount. I think it's almost like a half pound and it's vacuum packed. So I, that will if last you did it in like years. pints or quarts, I'd buy it. Yeah, one guy, one guy, and I think he's one of your audience members and we don't even offer this on the website. He's been buying, uh, one pound, which is a lot of spices. He, sure. He's, he's probably bought like, 
I don't know, 10 pounds of different spices. He just ordered this past week again, so I've been uh, filling those. But just uh, for folks to check out uh, on the Harvest Eating store there, we should be having those survival foods up there. And then um, for those of you that don't have the cookbook, you can get it. I've been seeing it on Amazon for like 8 bucks. And don't be afraid of a used copy. You can get a used copy of the cookbook. And I don't make any money on this. I'm just saying. Sure, a used one, the author's already made his royalty. Yeah, we don't make any money on it. But, it, I mean, you can get that book, and it's a great book. And I bought, like, four copies um, a couple of months ago. They were four bucks each. That's right, so Weston. You can get them wholesale from your publisher. Oh, you kidding me? Man, <laughs> yeah. i, I got to pay uh, almost What I was said about your point. book, Keith, is it, it's something people can put on a coffee table. It's like a picture book. It's absolutely fabulously done. Yeah, it's uh, it's and it's great for um, you know, if people are interested in harvest eating, it's a good resource to have. And uh, it's funny, Jack. We talked a little bit about the weather. We've got this stray dog that uh, we took in last May, and this dog has got a sixth sense. She came in and she, she usually sits on her bed. She came in about 20 minutes ago. She's now under my desk, uh, but she'll come in to me. At least 20 minutes prior to thunder coming. I don't know how. No, she can hear about 20 times better than you. So that's, something, man. That's probably like, it. Yeah, if she starts to come and, and like crawl on me or she follows me around the house, I'm like, yeah, we're gonna get a storm. And wow. We are getting a, a heck of a rain. And I just remembered, Jack. I hate to to, to kind of uh, end fast, but. Uh, all of my car windows are wide open. Okay. Sunroof. <laughs> well, we, you know, we had, I think we had a great show, and I think it's going to help people out with their Thanksgiving, and I'll put links to your site and everything else on the website. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko, today along with Chef Keith Snow, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Show you.